A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated in honor of the upcoming trip of Jewish History Soundbites to the United States this coming week. I want to remind you about the this uh, trip. I'm going to be arriving in New York um, on July 26. We'll be there for a week, and there are still a couple of lecture spots available if uh, your shul or organization or whatever is interested in having me come and talk. It's the nine days. It's a you know opportune time to explore our past a little bit, and of course the main event is a very special Kivrei Tzadikim Cemetery Tour at the Mount Judah Cemetery in Queens, and um, lots of Kivrei Tzadikim, uh, lots of Jewish history, uh, really nowhere like it in uh, in America. It's like almost like Har Menuchis here in Yerushalayim. Um, and that will take place Friday morning, July 29th at 9.30 a.m. It's Rish Chodesh Av, so it's a, an appropriate date. And you can register for that cemetery tour on my website, yehudageberer.com. There are still a few spots still open. So we're looking forward to seeing you, meeting uh, some of the listeners in person, and uh, going on a tour together at the Mount Judah Cemetery. So register for that at yehudageberer.com. What I'm going to have now is, um, even though I'm continuing with the, uh, the uh, Jews Saving Jews Holocaust series, of course, but I want to interdisperse it with regular episodes since it can be a bit overwhelming to have too many Holocaust uh, episodes in a row. So I'm going to have a two-part series about the life and times of Rabbi Sir Zalman Meltzer, a very, very special personality and historic personality. And there's so much to say about him, so I don't believe that we're going to be able to do it in one part. So I'm going to have to uh, do it in two parts, uh, one now and one next week. Rabbi Sezalman Meltzer was overshadowed much by his contemporaries um, of his day, other great Rashi Yeshiva of his day, contemporaries of his, friends of his from the Valajin Yeshiva, um, such as Rabarch Berlebovich, Rabbi Shimon Shkap, um, others, uh, the, his, his brother-in-law, Rabbi Shemotcha Epstein, to a certain extent, the Slabatka, um, the Mechta Ilui, many, many others who were with him in Valajin. Um, who, who, and he was somewhat overshadowed by them. 
He outlived them all, so he gave the impression of being a post-war Torah leader when all these others were pre-war Torah leaders, but he was a contemporary of all of them. He really belonged to the world of pre-war. He was a drop younger than them, but he came to Valajan very young because he was quite a brilliant young individual. Um, he also seems to have been uh, overshadowed by his illustrious son-in-law, Ravaran Cutler, um, who Ravaran Cutler was, uh, you know, a a personality, um, you know, a very charismatic, very outgoing, very energetic, very dynamic, um, louder to a certain extent, and also a great builder. Um, so he. And already in Slutsk, and then for sure in Kletsk, Rabban Cutler had already taken over when his father-in-law, Mr. Zalman, moved to Palestine in 1925. So there he's um, already pre-war. He's somewhat overshadowed by his young, dynamic son-in-law. Um, in addition, what also put him out of the limelight is that in 1925, he moves to the land of Israel. And, and you know, the center of Jewish life at the time was still Eastern Europe in Poland, in Lithuania, and he's out in Yerushalayim, hanging out with Yerushalmis, and on an even a more superficial level, he adopts the Yerushalayim dress to a certain extent, which was the custom at the time, and he puts on a strimal. And so the pictures from his later later in life make him look like some sort of Yerushalmi, or, or even a chassid, as opposed to the Litvisha Rav and Rosh Hashiva at the center of Lithuanian Torah uh, life that he was for most of the majority of his career. Um, and therefore, there's all these misconceptions uh, about him. And I feel like um, it's time we pay him his due by putting his place in history on here, right here on Jewish History Soundbites. So... I'll start off by saying I remember when I was a young uh, Talmud of Mir Yeshiva, and I was by the Shir of Rabashir Arieli. And if I recall correctly, we were studying at the time Bava Kama. Could be I made a mistake with the Masechta, I don't remember. And there was a guy walking around the base Madrash, and base Shalom, where Rabashir Shir was. Um, and he's walking around, and he obviously was uh, looking for something to do. So every couple of guys who looked like they were excited about seeing him, he would stop and start hacking them. Um, and, and, and his hack was Rabbisr Zalman's Hakira in Bavakama. And uh, apparently this guy didn't have anything else to talk about in Bavakama, so he drove everyone crazy about Rabbisr Zalman's Hakira. But the point I'm making is, is that Rabbisr Zalman has, you know, in several places like this classic yeshivish raid, this classic yeshivish questions and answers from his Evan Ho'ezel, his, his magnum opus, his very important sefer uh, that he has on, on, the, on, on, on the Rambam, and in many, many uh, very, very famous yeshivish raid is attributed to him. So he has that place in the, um, in the yeshiva world, and people are familiar with his Tyra. Another story, um, also from the Mir, is that, and this story brings out how he's so known, yet not so not well known, and not understood in the historical context of his time and his generation. This time I was in, I was already married, I was in the, the Ner Gavriel based Medrash, which was a Halacha based Medrash, I was in a Halacha Chabura, and the Reish Chabura there was a Halacha Rabbi, 
Um, and you know, they, they, if we, the distinction between the lumdus style of learning, which is in the regular classic yeshiva masechtas, as far as, as to make a distinction between that and the halacha style of learning, which is focused on the halacha lamaisa, so there, you know, two different styles and different chaburas in the mir uh, adhered to those different styles. So I remember uh, citing. A, a psak of Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, uh, the Rav Yerushalayim, and he was citing a psak that he had heard from Rabbi Zalman Meltzer regarding some sort of halacha about Havdalah. So I, 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 I quoted this, and the someone there said, I don't know if it was the Reish Chaburo or someone else, what is this? I never heard Rabbi Zalman Meltzer being cited for a psak. It's so strange. And they commented how strange it was to hear this. So there are two historic things that this fellow was not aware of. Number one, at a most basic level, Rabbi Pesach Frank, the Rav Yerushalayim, was Rabbi Zalman's first cousin, his younger first cousin, and they were very close and they lived in close proximity to each other, and they discussed halachic issues all the time, so it would make perfect sense that he would cite him. So that's the first thing he wasn't aware of. The secondly, and more importantly, Rav Issa Meltzer was the communal rabbi of Slutsk, which was quite a prestigious town, not some small little shtetl. Slutsk was a, a, an important, uh, you know, significant, significantly sized city, um, and he was there for quite a few years. He was the, the rabbi for decades, uh, over 20 years. He was the community rabbi there. And um, and it's an old city, and he was in charge of the Besden, in charge of all the Psak, and he paskined all the Shilas. So he was a very, very prestigious and important Paisik. So why wouldn't he have a Psak? And again, people are not aware. Um, in many ways, Rabbi Zalman was the last of his generation. By the time he passed away in 1953, he was likely the last world-renowned Torah leader who was an alumnus of the original Valazhin Yeshiva. There were other Valazhin alumni who were still alive, but they were not you know, very famous. Um, there were others who studied in Valazhin following its reopening, but I'm talking about the original Valazhin before its closing in 1892. He was, in, in a way, the last of the Mohicans. He was... Uh, um, last of a generation. He had been there quite young and he lived you know, well into his 80s and um, he, he had, uh, so he was a relic of a, of a different generation and he made that bridge to the post-war world, um, which almost no one else did from his generation. So he's an important link, a bridge, important link in the chain of Jewish history and Jewish tradition to carry that over from Valazhin to the post-war world and the rebuilding in the land of Israel after the war. He had a very interesting life, his youth, and he studied in Valazhin, his marriage into the prestigious Frank family of Aleksut, a suburb of Kovna, and then he was a Rosh Hashiva in Slabatka, and then the Rosh Hashiva in Slutsk, and then the rabbi in Slutsk, and then World War I, and the Bolshevik Revolution, and being the rabbi of Slutsk under communism, and then eventually he retires to the land of Israel, and he becomes in retirement the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim, and then his later years, he comes out. He comes even further out of retirement, and he's the head of the Mayatzis Gedele HaTayra of Agudas Yisrael in the state of Israel, and he's during the stormy early years of the state and the formation of the religious attitude uh, towards towards the state and, and, and in the political realm, and Abraham Zalman in his last years, when he's already 
uh, quite elderly and, and 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 trying to live out his golden years, he's uh, he's actually in his most active uh, phase of leadership. So he had a very very interesting life that crossed uh, time periods and continents. I remember hearing about him from one of his closest students from his later years in Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim, Reb Natafrayin, an old Yerushalmi tzaddik who lived across the street from the mirror. And when I was a student there, I used to eat shalashudis by him. And he used to tell us stories. And one of his favorite topics was relating stories about his Rebbe, Rebbe Sezalman Meltzer. And he was literally a Ben Bias by him. He used to um, um, study with him. And he would um, he would actually assist him in writing the Evan HaEzel, Rebbe Sezalman's um, work was the Evan HaEzel. Now Rebbe Sezalman had everything formulated in his mind, what he wanted to write, the exact wording that he wanted to write in the Evan HaEzel. The issue was, is that he had a sloppy uh, penmanship, a handwriting, and um, at least at least the printer in Yerushalayim thought he did. I don't know if objectively he did, uh, but the printer was not able to read his handwriting. So the um, Service Zalman would dictate the Evan Ha'ezel to his wife, Rebetzin Bela Hinda, who we'll get to, and she actually wrote the Evan Ha'ezel. Problem was, Rebetzin Bela Hinda sometimes was shopping or cooking for Shabbos and was unavailable to uh, to you know, be there to uh, to transcribe the uh, the the wording that Zalman would would speak out the exact wording that he wanted and 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 to be written. So he would uh, commandeer this Reb Ephraim to write the Evan Ezel. So he used to joke with us that he was a partial author of the Evan Ezel. In fact, Reb Ephraim showed us a piece of Evan Ezel that Reb Ezelman cited him, my dear student, Reb Ephraim. So there's actually a shtikel Torah in there from Reb Ephraim himself. So he was really, really close with him. In fact, he was uh, considered one of the best students in Eitz Chaim. So when um, Rebbe Zalman, at the beginning of the war, he was able to send a certificate, a visa certificate from the British mandate to his grandson who was stuck in Lithuania, in Kovna, Rebbe Schneer Cutler, a Baron Cutler's son, who was a young uh, student at the time, um, in Kamenitz, I believe. So, um, so Rebbe Zalman was able to get him a visa to get out and join him in Yerushalayim. So Rebbe Schneer is, is stuck in, 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 uh, in Yerushalayim for six or seven years with his grandfather. So who is he going to learn with? Rabbi Jenner Cutler is a, is a, you know, a tremendous uh, Talmud Chacham and a you know, young promising Torah scholar. And the Eitz Chaim level, yeshiva level, was not at the par that uh, Rabbi Schneer Cutler was used to in Kamenitz. So who's going to study with him? So Rabbi Zalman um, had uh, Rabbi Nuttafrind study with his grandson, Rabbi Schneer Cutler. See, who's Rabbi Schneer's Chavrusa for six or seven years. Um, so um, um, it's an interesting story, actually, Rabbi Nuttafrind, just remembering now. Um, from Sir Nutterfry, one of the favorite stories that he used to tell us about Rabbi Sezalman's later years is that Rabbi Sezalman lived in Nachlaot in in Bate Rand, uh, somewhere in that area, Bate Breida, Bate Rand, somewhere over there at the end of Nachlaot near Shari Chesed, near Rechov B'Tzal today, and um, and this was Rabbi Sezalman's first exposure, real exposure to. Uh, uh, on a regular, on a social level, to uh, Hasidic neighbors. In Slutsky, didn't really have it much. In Valazhin, he definitely didn't. Um, so in Slabatka, also not. So here in Yerushalayim, you know, Hasidim and, 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 and non-Hasidim lived side by side in peace. So they, so he had this exposure. So one time he was locked out of his home 
um, because his wife, Rebetzin Bela Hinda, was shopping at the nearby Machina Yehuda. So he, uh, he was elderly, so he asked one of his neighbors if he can sit down um, and, and you know, rest while he waited for his wife to come home. So, of course, they welcomed him in, they sat him down, and he asked for a safer. Now, the families in Yerushalayim were quite poor in those days, and Sfarim were quite expensive. Most people only used the Sfarim in the shuls, so they didn't really have any Sfarim in the homes. So the only safer that this Hasidic neighbor of Rabbi Zalman had was a Kedusha Slevi of Rabbi Yitzhak of Bardichev. So she handed it to him. The hostess of the house hands it to him. So he studies the Kedusha Slave. He was around Hanukkah time, so he studied some uh, Tyra of Hanukkah. And he didn't say a word. And when his uh, wife came home, he said, thank you. He returns the safer. He says, thank you. And he uh, goes back home. A year later, around Hanukkah time, he knocks on the door of his neighbor and he says, uh, uh, Can I have that safer? The Kedusha Slave, that safer, the Litvak. He's, he asks for that safer, Kedusha Slevi. So, you know, I always say, if, if, if even Rabbi Zalman loved the Kedusha Slevi, then we can all uh, utilize uh, the, that safer also, so, the safer Kedusha Slevi as well, of the Barditchever. In any event, so let's get back to the beginning of his life. Um, he's born in Mir. So here we have a, a real mirror that um, may have even studied for a short time in the local Mir Yeshiva before he went to Valazhin. It's unclear. I think he may have. Um, but when he arrives at Velazhin at the age of 14, um, he's known as Junya Mirror. His name was Isser Zalman. And somehow the nickname became Junya. Um, I guess it's a Yiddish-Russian derivative of Isser Zalman. And since the, you know people were very often known by the name of the town of origin, so he was Junya Mirror. And there was a he was this young young uh, student. He became a favorite very quickly of both the Nitziv, Rnaftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the longtime Rosh Hashiva of Alajin, and of Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, who was eventually Reb Chaim Brisker, who was now the assistant Rosh Hashiva in Valajin. He was the grandson by marriage to the Nitziv, and um, and he and he becomes the young rising superstar in Valajin during its last years of the yeshiva when. There's a lot of other famous people there. It's a golden age of the yeshiva. It's the last golden age. Um, he was there for seven years, from the age of approximately 14, shortly after his bar mitzvah, until he was approximately 21, from the years 1884 till 1891, till really a year before the closing of the yeshiva. Um, and uh, it was it was a, a great time for the yeshiva. The Reb Chaim Brisker's shiurim were very popular, and he became a close student of his, and um, and uh, and other uh, and you know Rabarach Berlebovich was there, uh, the Meitzah Teila was there, Rav Cook was there, Rav Zelagruvein Bengis was the future the future uh, Rav in Yerushalayim of the Eid Haredus was there and was one of the closest friends of Rav Zalman. They um, I think they either room together in the stanza uh, or they even studied together in the base medrash. I don't recall which, but they became very close. And many relationships that he forged in Velazhin would serve him well later on in his life and career. And many of these people, great leaders in many different areas, would all cross paths. And it's very interesting how they each developed uh, uh, you know, Rav Cook ends up in Yerushalayim, Rav Zal Meltzer ends up in Yerushalayim, and Rav Zalagruvein Bengis ends up in Yerushalayim, and their neighbors in Yerushalayim, they're not actually 
Rosella Gruvain and Rav Cook did not overlap. They were there at different times, but Rabbi Zalman overlapped with both, and they um, and they're each part of a different uh, ideological community, and yet they're close friends from Balazin, and they continue to be so. So it's a very interesting uh, situation. It was one of the stories that Rabbi Zalman used to relate in his later years um, about his time in Balazin was unrelated to the yeshiva altogether. It was when there was a fire in the town. And fires are very common in the town because they had coal ovens and those, and you know, to, to cook, to heat, everything was was these wood or coal ovens and wooden homes. And um, the fires burnt down the towns all the time. It was a common um, challenge of living in anywhere in the world, actually, at the time. So he described one of the fires in Velazhin during his time as a student there when all the yeshiva students went out to assist um, with you know, rescuing people from the fire and, and and getting them to safety and bringing water and forming brigades from from the wells or from the you know the streams, whatever it was, to try to put out the flames and prevent it from spreading. And Arisa Zalman, in the middle of all this mayhem, notices that there was this skinny, uh, weak uh, one of these day laborers, like a tailor or something. Uh, who, who, you know, was known as this, you know, elderly, bent over, skinny, no muscles, not not strong at all, not one of the people who you expected to have supernatural strength. And he notices him jumping into a burning uh, home, and because people were screaming inside, and coming out carrying under each one one person under each arm, carrying people out from the flames, carrying two people and carrying, you know down the block. And he was amazed by the strength that this person had um, to be able to carry him out. And he's like stopped in his tracks. He couldn't believe what he saw. How does this person find the strength to do it? And Arisa Zalman's conclusion was, When it's burning, we, we discover inner strength that we had, adrenaline, and we're able to do things that we never believed we'd able to be able to do because when Sabrentman Krikman Krikas, we realize that it that it's burning and we need to we need to save people. We need to get them out of the flames. We need to save their lives and get them out. And for him, he said that became a lesson for life, and that drove him the rest of his life. That when Sabrentman Krikman Krikas, when we may think that we don't have the strength, we can't, we can't build, we don't have we don't have the energy, we don't have the abilities, we don't have the talents. Um, but if we understand our sabrentman, we understand that it's burning, then all of a sudden, krikman keiches, that, um, that we know we have the strength to do it. All we have to do is understand that there's a fire burning, and then we'll be able to, to uh, accomplish that. So it's a very, very powerful lesson, and it can be used in many different contexts, and I repeat it very often uh, on my trips and in my speeches. It's, uh, it's, I remember Rav Baruch Mordechai Ezrachi used it in his Hesper of uh, the Rosh Hashiva the Mir, of Nassim Tzvi Finkel. He said, how was he able to accomplish so much? He said, he said this story of uh, Rebbe Zalm, which is a classic, it's a famous story. And he said, you know, he did it with all his, uh, with all his fire of Rav Baruch Mordechai. Um, either way, getting back to Rebbe Zalman. So when he comes a marriageable age, so he marries into the Frank family, the legendary Frank family, Reb Shaga Feivel Frank of Alek Sut, a suburb of Kovna, who was very close with the Musser movement, a very close student of Rabbi Shal Salanter, a very wealthy uh, layman uh, in Alek Sut. 
and he plays a major decisive role in the institutions that are being uh, built in Kovna, Slabatka at the time, uh, the Kovna Koil, the Slabatki Yeshiva, Many, most of these institutions are loosely or closely affiliated with the Musar movement and the Musar personalities of Rabbi Yisrael Salanta and later Rabbi Zalapetterberg and Rabbi Amsterdam, the Alter Slabatka and other Musar personalities are around the Kovna Slabatka Aleksut area during these years and the Frank family is the center of it all. Their home was kind of like a headquarters of the Musar movement. And Rabshaga Feivel Frank, the wealthy Rabshaga Feivel Frank, passes away at a young age, and he asks his wife that their daughters should all marry uh, aspiring young Talmidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, and then in that uh, and 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 they eat they, each and every one of them do. Um, so one of them marries Rabbi Sazalman Meltzer, Rabbi Zimbei Lahenda, um, and the other ones Mar- Menucha marries Rabbi Shem Mordechai Epstein. And the other two uh, girls, uh, daughters of Reb Shagafival Frank, marry um, Reb Sheftel Kramer, uh, who eventually, you know, he first sees the Mashkiach in Slutsk with his brother-in-law, Reb Sazal Meltzer. Later on, he is a Rav in in, uh, in Russia, and then later on, he moves to the United States, where he's a Rashiva in New Haven. And uh, his son-in-law, Reb uh, Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, is eventually, of course, uh, near Yisrael. Um, and then the fourth son-in-law was Rabbi Horovitz, who was uh, in Aleksut. He was the Rav in Aleksut. He's the only one who stayed in the neighborhood. And he eventually also became a Rosh Hashiva in Slabatka during World War I and remained there until his passing in the 1930s. His cover we actually go to, um, Rabbi Horovitz. He's buried in Aleksut in the last remaining Jewish cemetery in Kovna. So we go to his uh, cover, his son, Reb Shraga Feivel Horovitz, who's named, of course, for his grandfather, Reb Shraga Feivel Frank, was killed by the Nazis uh, in the Kovna ghetto. Uh, so, um, and, and of course, Reb Zalman is buried in Haramanuchas in the Chalkas Harabanam in Haramanuchas, and Reb Shamatcha Epstein is buried in uh, in uh, Harazesim. I believe Reb Shaftel Kramer is buried in the United States. So the four brothers-in-law are on the four corners of the world but they both uh, made uh, very significant contributions to the Torah world, so it seems like they did well. Um, so, um, Rebetzin Beilahinda becomes a legendary part of the story of Rebetzin Zalman as well, because she's something of a of a scholar, of a Torah scholar herself, quite brilliant and and scholarly and knowledgeable and 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 you know talkative. She you know she had a she had a tongue and she she expressed her opinion on quite a few occasions. So she was uh, something of a of a noted figure herself. Now, Rabbi Zalman, when he was in Valaj and he was part of a clandestine uh, organization in the yeshiva among the students of the yeshiva, which many prestigious students of the yeshiva were affiliated with called Neis Tziona, which was close to the Chovavet Tzion movement, which was a proto-Zionist movement before political Zionism. This was a Chovavet Tzion, the lovers of Zion. Um, and um, he and his future brother-in-law, Ramayisha Matcha Epstein, were, were affiliated with that, as was the Frank family. And when they marry into the Frank family, um, they all together, the Franks, and Rabbi Suzam and Epstein, they invest in some of the early Chovet Zion um, real estate settlements, um, in, in primarily Chadera, which Chadera 
uh, today is a major city in Israel, was built by Kovna religious Jews, most of them affiliated with either Velazhin or the the Musser movement. And the Meshumat Epstein and Mrs. Alman were prominent among them. They invest in Chadera, and they're from the early builders of Chadera. Meshumat Epstein even lived there for a couple of years. Mrs. Zalman did not make it. Um, and uh, and they... Uh, and so there, that's another part of their story as well. So while he's engaged, he actually studies in Raden uh, by the Chavetz Chaim. He becomes a student of the Chavetz Chaim and very close to them as well. And there are several stories of his relationship with the Chavetz Chaim as well. So he gets a little bit of everything. And shortly afterwards, when he's only 24 years old, he is hired to be the Rosh Yeshiva of Slabatka. Uh, by the altar of Slobodka Rav Finkel, together with his brother-in-law, Rav Meshumatcha Epstein, they become these two young sons-in-law of Rav Shagafayvul Frank, of the deceased Rav Shagafayvul Frank, are now hired to become Rosh Yeshiva Slobodka. So what's the story behind that? Because that uh, that's pretty much uh, one of the major stories of his life. Um, the Slabatki Yeshiva during its first decade struggled to define itself. The altar was trying to create something unique in a Musr Yeshiva, which is really the first of its kind, as well as a classic Valajan-style learning yeshiva. And he wanted to have that synthesis of both. And he hired Rashi Yeshiva, first Reb Chaim Rabinovich, who would later on be known as Reb Chaim Telzer, and later on Reb Ram Abba Burstein, um, and then later on Reb Tzilapanovizer, and they leave one at a time, first two in 1890, or in 1894, and it was primarily due to the educational differences and approach that they had with the altar, with their not being adherents to the Musser movement and style, and opposed to his Musser approach, especially within the curriculum, curriculum of the yeshiva. So the altar decided, after they all left, to bring in younger blood, um, some you know younger ones that he'd be able to control and maintain uh, discipline, and they'd be brought in strictly on an employee basis. That they would be there to be Rashi Yeshiva to attract a young uh, uh, following <coughs> to give, deliver Shiurim, but the education of the Yeshiva would be solely the pur- the purview of the altar. Um, so, of course, the Frank family had a lot to say about the Slobotki Yeshiva and its development as well, because they were the close supporters of the Yeshiva, and they were there, right there in Al-Aksut. So, though Issa Zalman and Ramesha Moitcha Epstein had studied in Valajan, which was not affiliated with the Muslim movement, but since they were now married into the Frank family, they absorbed a bit of the Musser environment during their years of kest, of support, in in that home, which was a Musser hub, as I described. So the altar felt comfortable hiring them. He felt that there would not be opposition from them to his style of Musser. But nevertheless, just to be sure, and this um, I, I don't think is well known, he sends the two of them to Kelm um, for some Hishtalmut, for some uh, Musser training, uh, as it were, in the great uh, citadel of Musser in Kelm. Um, so, you know, before he hired them. So they go for this short stint in Kelm, um, the two of them. Now, you know, to, to be ready to be hired by the altar in Slobodka. Now, Ramesh Matcha Epstein was considered closer to the Muslim movement and more submissive in a way to the altar, whereas Rabbi Zalman was considered a bit more distant from Musser and he had less of a close relationship with the altar. In addition, Ramesh Matcha had a stronger personality, while Rabbi Zalman was a bit of a softer 
personality. Now, these differences between the two um, brothers-in-law would have great ramifications as to their respective career paths in the future. So now they're Rashi Yeshiva in Slabatka, um, and um, and um, there was actually a whole story about they almost hired Rabbi Alter almost hired Rabbi Aaron Bakst, Rabbi Archik Bakst, um, as the Rashiva in Slabatka, but he had been engaged to one of the daughters of the Frank family, and the engagement did not materialize. They didn't or didn't work out because they didn't they, they didn't foresee a great future for Rabarchik Baj, which unfo- which was unfortunate because Rabarchik Baj had an incredible future. He was a great rav in several different towns, including Tsaritan, which later was Stalingrad. He was the rabbi there. But he was the rabbi in Lomja and Shavel and, and four or five other towns and he was um, he was a great, great uh, Musser, you know, student of Kelm, um, and um, but um, but the Frank family and, and, and Rabarchik Baksh didn't have a good ending that relationship, and therefore it w- wouldn't have been appropriate to hire Rabarchik Baksh to be the Rashivan Slabatka, which would be in the face of the Frank family, who were the close supporters. It would be a little bit awkward. So instead. They, he wasn't hired, and instead they hired the sons-in-law of the Frank family. So a bit of nepotism there. But in any event, so um, the the he has um, he becomes the Rashiv in Slobodka. He starts delivering delivering shiurim, and he's this young, brilliant lamdan. He's twenty-four years old when he becomes the, when he's appointed Rosh Shiva, and he's he attracts the cream of Slobodka, um, the biggest lamdanim. The 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 Iluyim, um, and he gets this uh, you know attracts quite a following and uh, by nature it was primarily the non musr faction in the Slabatki Yeshiva so it immediately starts to create a bit of attention and this comes to a head several years later and that leads to the 1897 um, split in Slabatka um, which leads to the um, um, there's two things really which happens. There's the first, the move to Slutsk, where Sazalman leaves with the Yad Hachazak of 14 uh, uh, young, uh, brilliant students of Slabatka to start a branch sort of of Slabatka in Slutsk. And he becomes the Rosh Hashiva there, and that's on the invitation of the Ridbaz, Rabbi Yaakov David Volovsky. And, um, and, and that, that starts a branch there in Slutsk. And eventually, he when the when the Ridvaz leaves for Chicago, and then later for Tzfas, so the the Rebbe Zalman succeeds him as the rabbi of Slutsk. So he becomes the rabbi of the town and of and and uh, the Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva there. And then eventually, also in Slabatka itself, there is a Musser split, the pro and anti Musser factions, and the altar leaves and starts Knesset Yisrael. And it is related to this story of Rebbe Zalman and leaving to Slutsk, and it becomes a bit complicated as well. So the whole thing mixes together, and and it comes to head in 1897. That's the crucial year. So that will cover in the part two of Rebbe Zalman, um, which will be released in a few days. So we'll get the whole story of the Slutsk uh, event, and then his later uh, life in Slutsk, and then in Yerushalayim, and his later years of leadership. So this was part one about Rebbe Zalman Meltzer. Stay tuned shortly for part two. Uh, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Sound Bites. Don't forget to register and sign up for the the what, what's to be a very exciting Kvarim tour 
in the Mount Judah Cemetery this coming Friday, July 29th at 9.30 a.m. You can register at my website, yehudageber.com. Looking forward to seeing all of you. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.